Hi everyone, it's Joachim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In today's episode, I'm talking with Neil McFarland and Matt Ryan from First Light Games, a game studio based out of London, UK. The founders started the company a few years ago to work on free-to-play mobile games, but last year they decided to pivot to Web3 Gaming. In this episode, we talk about the funding models that the founders have used in Web3, what the challenges are in getting the tokenomics right for a Web3 game, and how to build a core team in Web3 Gaming. The dilemma at the heart of mobile gaming. Monetizing your great work while keeping gamers engaged and not distracted by intrusive ads. Well, our partners on this podcast have a very clever solution. AudioMob delivers in-game audio ads so that game developers can monetize their players without interrupting gameplay. Audio ads are better at retaining happy gamers than video ads and can actually work alongside video ads too. This is all the while having much higher CPMs than banner ads, up to 600% higher. AudioMob's Unity plugin is simple to set up. It can take just minutes, allowing complete privacy control, and you can even reward players for extra gratification. Simple, clever, and rewarding. Go to audiomob.com for details and to speak to the team. All right, we're recording, guys. Hey, hey, Neil. Hey, Matt. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey, Jakob. Great to be here. Yeah, good. Good. There's so much to talk about today. I, I, I want to kick things off and ask you about your origin stories. Can you share how you guys made your way into gaming? Maybe, Neil, you could start. Yeah, sure. I maybe have got an unusual story. I think I I feel like I got into gaming kind of through the side door. It wasn't something I planned on doing, you know, like as a a career, unlike Matt or or our other founder, Anil, who always wanted to work in games. I'd always played games, you know, from um, see, like I'm old enough to to have been playing Asteroids in the arcade cabinet in the swimming pools. Um, And then always being, you know, as soon as I could, I got a a Spectrum computer at home. And, and, you know, the first home console I ever saw was an Atari ST. Uh, So I was always fascinated by them and was always playing them but I honestly didn't never cross my mind that I would ever want to that you could make them you know it all seems kind of foreign or, or exotic and I started my career as a as a as an artist as a, an illustrator and then a commercial artist making things from you know I was doing comic strips I was doing advertising art and then um, advertising animation and creative animation for did a little web series and stuff during the sort of dot-com era when I moved to, first moved to London so lots of things that were all useful tools at, in gaming but not specifically gaming. Gaming all the time, but not being able to see a way into it. I did have, the first time I ever worked on a game was, I can't remember the year, but I was asked to contribute to a Wipeout game, the Wipeout racing game. There was a version brought out for the Sony PSP. They commissioned four artists to contribute a track to that release, a downloadable content, and I did a track for that. So that was the first time I ever worked on a game, and that was with the Sony Liverpool, the old Signosis studio. But that was kind of a one-off as, a, as an artist and then didn't do anything again for a while. And then I was at a company called Us2 for many years, initially 
Again, we weren't doing games. I was running an internal IP team. iOS came out and amongst other things, we eventually did a game. Uh, we did a game called Whale Trail, which I did all the artwork for. So that was a, that my second gig in gaming, really. But, you know, the, the, my, the sort of most significant one, I got to do some level design in that as well. And then after that, it was successful enough that the company then sort of transitioned from, we just shifted all our internal focus to making a, a studio out, out of the IP division that I was heading up. And I was then tasked with sort of building that. So I, I hired in the, the sort of the games, the initial games team. And very, very unusually, we, we made Monument Valley, which unusually being the sense that very few studios have a hit with their first game as a team. And we did. And then, so I guess from Whale Trail onwards, I felt like I was actually making games. Um, it's kind of the way in I got to it. But as I've, I've explained, it wasn't kind of a, a planned thing. It was a, just a very serendipitous way in to get in. Uh, but I'm very happy I'm here. You know, I've always played games. I love them. and It's super exciting to be involved in them. Yeah. So on my side, I, I grew up in the West Country in Ireland. And from a young age, I was constantly building things. And my dad put me on a, a computer course when I was the age of nine. And from that point, I was always tinkering with OSs and I followed that up with some studies around electronic engineering. And during that time, when I was tinkering with PCB boards and breadboards and learning what a NAND gate and a resistor was, I, I picked a project at the time that was, I wanted to capture a room's dimensions using sound waves. And through that process, I needed to basically render the room in 3D. And that was something that was not taught in electronic engineering. And I kind of pursued it more and started reading some books on graphics and how was, I was going to basically solve this. And that was when I downloaded DirectX, I think it was version seven. I'm showing my age now. But at that time, I started looking at the code, started looking at things like an index buffer and a vertex buffer, and how I would render triangles on a screen that reflected a room's dimensions. From that point on, I, I picked up the handle vertex buffer. That's where you can actually find me on Twitter. But I, I thought, okay, this is so powerful, you know, being able to program the GPU and what could manifest from that. And like Neil, I, I shared it like a love of games and I pursued more studies in the UK and Hull University and built some, some demos. I built like a, a spring engine that was based on 3D physics and built up a whole kind of library and portfolio of demos. And then I was lucky enough to arrive in Manchester with a super team. So I got to work within the Warthog core team in, in Cheadle and never looked back really, just stayed within this space and further from Warthog up north I I joined Juiced Games working on Juiced a racer was tinkering with tools gameplay programming core tech and then joined a Lionhead core tech team and yeah just met fantastic people along the way amazing backgrounds of both of you guys sort of like seeing that scene develop in the UK and like going to to now full circle to web3 <laughs> like can you introduce First Light Games and your new project, Blast Royale? How, how did the company start and like how did you pivot over to, to Web3? 
Yeah, I can take that one. Yeah, so I'd left us two games and an, I was starting to look to, for funding for a new studio. I quickly ran into the problem of people. Oh, it was a good problem, but people were saying, look, really like what you're doing, but you need a co-founder. You can't do this on your own and you need someone with more experience, especially in the free-to-play area of gaming, because that's really in starting a studio at Monument Valley, which is a premium game. No one is going to, you know, very few people probably would want to fund a strictly premium studio at that time, which is fair enough. I understood that. So I was looking to find a co-founder and was lucky enough through a, a mutual friend of myself and Neil's, a guy called Lawrence Clark, who's currently at Network. He, I actually asked him if he wanted to do anything. And he's like, look, no, I'm very happy here. But he said, literally, there's a guy moving back to London tomorrow called Anil, you should call him. I jumped on a, a call with him, Anil, and we hit off and we were able to found the studio myself uh, neil is actually uh, in his past life as a programmer but um we uh, you know he, he he's not the you know admit itself he would admit that he's not the best so we're like we need a cto as well so that's when we brought matt in and the sort of three of us kind of sort of founded that core team and started working on our on our first game and we spent the six first six months of working um actually out of the national theater in the central london because they had a open foyer policy and free wi-fi so we were able to kind of bootstrap ourselves so, making our, our first, uh, we were making an idle game at first, along with another programmer, and then later on, and me doing the artwork until we met Play Ventures and got our first sort of pre-seed round from there. And we were building a, a free-to-play studio, and we were building it on the ethos of, you know, and this this continues to this day, it's like, we, you know, we're game makers, we love games, at core. it's hard, everything we do is about game. And we were, you know, we spent a, a couple of years growing the team with very experienced professionals in the, in, in the games industry. Um, we kind of built the team around that ethos of a small team with great experience can do a lot more than a more junior team. So we kind of had that ethos while we were sort of, you know, still we didn't have a huge amount of money. Um, and we were able to build very high definition games, um, multiplayer games as well. You know, Matt you know, built the tech, you know, brought in the tech for that and we built a really solid foundation of games. And we'd been through a couple of cycles on on a, a shooter, on the variation of shooter games, which we found was where our sort of sweet spot was as a studio. And we were doing that up until the, um, the sort of Q3 of 2021, when we, I mean, Matt, uh, Matt can talk a little bit about this, but, he, he, you know, he had a keen interest in, in Web3 and was always sort of, you know, suggesting it as something we could do, but we didn't really have any visibility on it. But towards the end of last year, we were, um, again, we met with Henrik, who's one of the investors from Play, uh, and he uh, let us know, that one of the other studios in the portfolio was doing this and we could take a look at what they were doing and that gave us the impetus to, and it gave us that insight to be able to sort of do things for ourselves and it was pretty easy after that to choose to switch over to it wasn't it yeah um yeah i remember when henry came over and we we had dinner and he spoke about the blockchain and gaming and, and that whole intersection and what maybe that could lead to and yeah we we kind of sat down after speaking with Henrik and we said okay let's look at this closely and some of the big kind of glaring things that popped up as to why we might go this path were things like the community building aspect so having an ecosystem close to the project that has intrinsic value in in your product is is very powerful and a lot of things can manifest from that in different ways from hiring from the community from getting feedback collaborations and yeah we were spending like thousands of pounds on facebook google ads and burning up a lot of money and i think that 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 for us was huge having like a solid core community and aside from that the the 
premise of, I think, decentralization and opening up your code on the blockchain with immutable code and having consensus algorithms, that whole model was, was quite appealing in a sense of like building trust and as opposed to maybe a centralized model where systems can be be compromised, files can be deleted, history can be removed. So I think, yeah, we saw great merit to that. And I think from from our side, that that, that was a big factor. And on top of that, we, we, we've been around long enough to see when there's a sort of a sea change in different aspects of the gaming industry. Often they're based around the, the, the financing model. Anil was at um, Capcom when the, um, he they made Smurfs Village, which was the first ever number one US grossing game powered by free-to-play. So we could see the writing on the wall in the, in the sense that here's a, a whole new paradigm shift. There's a, an early mover advantage. So that fed into it. And we were just sort of right place, right time in terms of our product cycle. And then so the, since then, since deciding after that sort of that dinner and deciding, we've had the most intense, I, I would ask everyone in the team, it's been in one of the most intense periods in my entire life where we went from knowing very, very little to still knowing very little, but learning every day. You know, we were getting headaches, the amount of information we we're trying to take on board. Um, it's been a, a huge, huge learning curve, almost like getting thrown thrown back into a, a master's degree at university with no warning. It's kind of what it felt like, but hugely rewarding for, as a result. And the past few months have been, um, yeah, just very, very intense as we've taken on, gone from being completely, well, not completely in the dark, but almost completely in the dark, making a few connections, learning our first few things, and then that snowballing, making connections within this the community across every vertical um, be that VCs, be that people who are also making their own new companies to, to sort of tackle problems within the space. Uh, hundreds, we've had hundreds and hundreds of Zoom calls with different people. And I'm very happy to say they've, they've been very, very, everyone's been very welcoming. There's a real spirit of people helping each other. Yeah. And then that sort of brings us to the point now where we feel like we've taken, we've become self-sufficient in a lot of areas, especially mm-hmm. on the engineering side. Matt's done a great job in building a, a blockchain team there. We've become um, almost, we, we, we've got our own community team now internally, still working with external partners for, for marketing and PR, but, you know, and also now we've grown the core engineering team, the art team. It's, it's just been fantastic in terms of the growth um, and expansion and learning. And yeah, it's been a huge opportunity that we've been able to solve. Yeah, and on that with, with our project, our first gaming project, Blast Royale, so we we decided to create, like, start with a game mode that was a battle royale and to move into the, the blockchain space with something high quality. And yeah, it's, it's been grown from there, really. I want to break down sort of all the components that you guys have been looking at. And, and let's start off with just like in, in simplicity. How do you now look at like blockchain gaming? You, you talked about the community, but what is so great about it for gaming? I mean, yeah, there's, I think there's a few answers there. We can uh, tackle different, as you said, there's probably a few things to break out. When you look at maybe some of the press on it and some of the big high profile projects that have come out and had negative responses, there's still a, a big education piece to to sort of be, be done on this is to people that obviously, were, I mean, it's the same with free to play though. So it's nothing new in the gaming community. I think games tend to be quite conservative um, and they want to protect what they see as the status quo. I understand that from a certain point of view, but 
for us and what we see as a benefit i think like as a, yeah the existential point is the ownership of your your own digital assets and those being potentially and hopefully transferable between projects or at least the fact that you you can you have them and you're not subject to again being sort of sunset and switched off and everything you've pumped into it being lost people will be listening to this and going oh yeah but that's stuff's not guaranteed anywhere and i would say yeah rightly so it's still very early days but the the, the ethos is there and the sort of fundamental kernel of the whole point of this is is that I, I, that's what I believe anyway? Yeah, yeah. Following up on that, I think the the community is basically, I suppose, at the heartbeat of our project. So in a shift from very much the free to play, and I think that why why is that? I think that what we have is a kind of following that really believes in in the kind of product and the team and. Through that, that community can share in the success of the product and also be part of the journey in so many different ways. You see some companies now in gaming, they're selling for crazy money and the community gets like ultimately zero. It's more of a, I think, bigger than, than maybe perhaps gaming in that the whole model of value share. I think that that ties into it as well. I think there's some moving parts around like the community, but I think for gaming, what it helps to drive is more of a free market and more collaboration and people being incentivized to, to maybe help on your project. There's a lot, of, and you could ask it different members of the team, and they all add another, their angle, depending depending on what they that they see as a, as a benefit and a value add to what we do. But yeah, I agree that the community is a huge part. You know, from going for, I mean, with Monument Valley, there was a huge community interest and a lot of fan art, and we spoke to the community, and it's a bit more like that. Whereas free to play felt fairly cold you know there's a relationship with advertising and that was about it i know obviously there's fan art and, and, and what have you but this seems much much closer to to the to the community and yeah it's, it's more enjoyable from that point of view yeah and on our side it's it's our challenge is to kind of create like trust and transparency around like what we're delivering when we build our products so and in examples of that come back to i suppose decentralization so our code is fully decentralized. What, what parts of our data are on-chain, off-chain? What that means is our community members can see, okay, this is what's going to happen if I interact with this piece of code. Yeah, I wanted to actually go and talk about the tech. From the perspective of you guys being a mobile game studio still in, like last year, last fall, to, to where you're right now, what are kind of the fundamental tech stack for for a blockchain game? Ultimately, it will come down to maybe use cases. So what you're, you're maybe building. Uh, I think maybe as an example, in our case, I can say that one of, one of our goals as in First Light was to build up value in the tech in-house. So to, to really get our hands stuck in around, you know, writing our own smart contract code that we deploy up onto test nets and mainnets and building up that whole environment. For Blast Royale, as an example, we, we have, I suppose, two kind of products. We have the game client and we have our, our own marketplace that we're building in-house. Now, I think some of the critical decisions as you know, the tech teams do make is, okay, well, what blockchain am I gonna, will we, we adopt for a given project? And there's different reasons why teams will go certain paths. For us, we, we went with Polygon and we think that they have very good values around decentralization and their ecosystem is very supportive. I think as a tech stack, 
what what you need if you're going to you know write code on the blockchain is ultimately a a solid backend so a way of reading and caching data that that happens on on the the chain itself from transactions from items that maybe perhaps you might sell given given your product so having all that data indexable on the back end i think that that's critical also yeah there, there's a number of libraries that people are using so things like graphql and morales also you can run your own full node so i think that um fundamentally the big components what what blockchain is is right for for the product there, there's a lot of it's it's evolving very fast so there's there's zero knowledge and optimistic rollups some some tech around like arbitrum starkware avalanche multi-chain tech there's a lot of a lot of kind of evolving tech but i think that fundamentally you you definitely need a way of aggregating your data on the back end and then on the client some way of of reading from the blockchain and perhaps broadcasting so some of the libraries we're using are like the likes of Ethereum. WebJS, you know, we use Open Zeppelin libraries. Yeah, and we work with a lot of really good partners as well around auditing and security. So penetration testing of our tech stack as well. If you think about just the game itself, you're still running a game on the cloud where you're storing the game state and things like that. But then you have a separate area for what actually runs on the chain. Yeah, so... In our case, for Blast Royale, the, the players, they progress through the game, they get rewarded for, for skill, and they grind up through the leagues, and all those rewards are, are stored off-chain. Then in our marketplace, players can authenticate and sign into to an account and, and claim rewards from the blockchain. A lot of the, the blockchain interaction for us in this case is within our marketplace. Going into then the, the financing aspect of building up a, a gaming startup in Web3. What have you done so far regarding the financing that Web3 offers? Yes, so specifically for Blast Royale, which is our Web3 project that is financed uh, through a token offering. So the game is built on the Blast token, which has utility in terms of, of what is needed to, to do certain operations within the game. And that is then offered the base currency and base funding model for the whole project. And in strictly finance terms, if people are, you know, people are interested in listening to this podcast, have maybe done looked at equity raising, and we have done two rounds of equity fundraising for the studio itself. Uh, we've funded this project by uh, to the, up until this point by doing a, a, a private token sale of the Blast token, which has seen institutional investors uh, buy an allocation of the 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 the, um, of the treasury's whole uh, entire token pool, and they with them being coming on in the first round, such uh, similar with an equity round, you get a good you get a good deal by coming in early. So we've sold off that this this project is 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 funded to the tune of five million dollars, and we will be those investors will be getting an allocation of tokens um, pro rata to their participation in that in that full amount. There will be other rounds within as we go forward in the project. First of all, a strategic round, which will be uh, where we sell tokens to people who are going to be in, taking interest in helping us build the community and grow the visibility of the game. And then it goes on to the public sale where the, the token is listed and people can uh, buy it from an exchange. And what that does is that initially the first round provides 
for want of a better word, a war chest or funding for the project for the team to cover the costs of the studio to, to actually deliver the project. And in the second case of the other rounds, that is to put that money goes in. It's not used by the team that goes into a, a treasury and that is used as liquidity and allows the, the trading of the tokens, which is needed for the for the operations within the game. So if I'm quickly straying into terminology, which is much more like financial terminology, much more akin to shares and stock markets in terms of how things are used and utilized and have an analogy of. So it is a it's a thing. It's quite an, quite a large piece of that any team would need to take on in understanding. You one big piece of what the whole project has been around it, which is called tokenomics, which is the economics of the token offering. On top of that, there is the NFT sales, which um, again we're using for liquidity in the ecosystem in the in the treasury at first. So and then beyond that, once the game is live and, and people are playing the game and the pieces of equipment, the NFTs are being upgraded, used, and then sold on the on our on our marketplace. The company then be, through the technology, Web3 technology and the smart contracts, we we then take a cut of any change whenever any equipment changes hands. And that's a key source of revenue for the for the game going forward. So we can then concentrate on making the game as good as possible. More people will play it, there'll be more use of the the, the NFTs, more trades happen. We we can take money in from from those trades and so it's about building volume so it's a big thing to take on board for any team is, is, is trying to get their head around this whole financial piece the DeFi piece as, as you can kind of think of it um, and has been a big emphasis on understanding tokenomics understanding the economy we've been blessed by having nick uh, who's our uh, game designer our self-senior designer who's has worked in gaming for years and worked on many free-to-play e- economies that's carried over that knowledge has been extremely useful and we're also using external partners such as machinations who are now uh, providing a kind of gold standard in terms of auditing and simulating economies in the web3 space to give projects investors and players confidence that the whole thing is not going to crash because you're dealing with when people are putting money in and there's a potential of them taking money out then you need to be very careful with that. You're essentially running a, an almost like a small country's economy for want of a better way of putting it. So you need to be very careful with how you, you manage that. It's just additional thought and care you need to put into the economy design of the game. I wanted to ask a, a follow-up question there regarding like, this is how Web3 gaming makes money is, is you have the token, you have the NFT, and you have these transaction fees where you're taking a cut of any item being traded. What are sort of like the hardest ones for the developers to tackle? You've done it in an order where you first did the token and now you're putting out NFTs and finally it's going to be the trading. Can you sort of elaborate on those? In terms of taking fees and being able to do that in a secure way, as an example, we we write the code for this in the smart contract in our case. With Solidity, you can set certain roles within the for, for certain owners' addresses to, to mint or to receive the, the fee, basically. So uh, in terms of the tech, we use Signosis Safe. So fees would be basically taken and, and tokens would be allocated into our Signosis Safe. So yeah, to answer your question, it's a lot of what we're talking about is code that runs on on a mainnet in, ca- in the case of Polygon, and that code is all open for everyone to see. This is a, an emerging and changing space where 
we've done what we see as sort of best in class solutions to things that, that are out there. Obviously, it's the first time we've done it. There's, a, there's, a, there's an overhead on understanding the technology and be able to build that. The technology is one big aspect of it. In terms of revenue and economy, and not, not necessarily the technology, what you are doing is funding the project by people who are looking to invest broadly across this space. So we, we co- our co-leads are on a marker and, and mechanism. And they are looking to back successful projects in this space. And we're backed by them because we are trying to bring the, the, the best qualities of, sort of Web2 gaming, for want of a better word, real gameplay to this space, um, games in this space. For a while now that people have made, uh, you know, huge treasuries have been built up, people have made money from, but they've, they've tended to be on the sort of, sort of DeFi end of the scale, i.e. the people are playing them in order to generate profits, not necessarily being the best games in the world. We're trying to bring a very, very good game to this space and, and have the benefit of the sort of play and earn mechanism on top. Um, and as a studio, we are, yeah, we're following a, a slightly, you know, a path that's already been set by previous projects. So we had something to follow. The token sale has been fantastic and it does give us that that platform to build on. And the NFTs give us a source of, it, they're integral to the game, but then it gives us a source of ongoing revenue because as they're traded, we take a, a a slice of the the trade and that's kind of how the economy and the the, the, the game ultimately will be profitable from those processes then thinking about just like if you would be starting a game studio in web3 right now from scratch how would you approach hiring the core team like if you can only put six or seven people in a room the answer to the question which is like maybe the roles you would pick but the other answer to the question is some of the attributes of team members which i think have been i think look you know we've we found been the most useful for our journey and i'll answer on that you and maybe you can talk about the composition of the team but like from my point of view the and and you know we've we've now spoken to several of the studios have asked us questions about this i think the and i mentioned this earlier there's there's got to be a very very open mind about learning you've got to be very i think social you know being sociable because you have to talk to a lot of people is a big big part of this an element of entrepreneurialism and an element of hustle because there's, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of work to be done a lot of people to talk to a lot of connections to be made and it's not something where you can maybe be cocooned away making a game on its on it, for its own merits and its own right and yeah you know that's in free to play you would need you'd, you'd be someone who's looking at user acquisition and all those things but for web3 with that being sort of less relevant at, at this point in time it's really about you know that 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 want and desire from each team member to to learn and take on new information and and, and share that information and and look to always be solving new problems and looking for solutions all the time researching continually all those are the kind of attributes that are really really required from everyone in, in, in our team and everyone's sort of displaying right now is, an, is, is those kind of burning that those appetites to take to take new things on at a very fast pace i would say would be a key um, characteristic of team members and in terms of in terms of components of, of a team as well obviously you need to you need engineers who understand blockchain that's a big one obviously yeah, and on that, I think for us, we we were keen to get like really good advisors on board in terms of like the tech side. We we have Alex Pooj from Calum Labs, based out of Barcelona, who's who's very well known in the in the space. And um, when we when we look to hire in terms of like building out the tech tools infrastructure in the blockchain gaming space, which is what we're doing at First Light, we. We see the value there of really growing that kind of infrastructure and tools. Whereas in the gaming side, 
tools and tech, it, it's so, it's very mature, but it's kind of like a new horizon. So we're looking for people who can, you know, has very good computer science fundamentals, but if you're a full stack developer and you're really keen to learn, that's good. You know, we, we, we're all learning and yeah, we can get trained up and start adding value. And I think Neil touched on it, like building the right culture and kind of people that align with, with our values is really the most important thing. But ultimately, people who share kind of the passion and vision for what we're doing. So there's really good alignment on, on both sides, basically. Yeah, adding to that on a practical level, if you again go back to sort of roles, I think if we were to start again from day one, we do have you know community growth lead we've got dan reynolds who's you know doing a great job we didn't have him at the beginning i think if you could sort of pick a, a core team to begin with you would have someone who was as experienced as possible in, in community building and social media um, management and you know who's going to be looking after the discord building that community from the ground up you're going to need someone who's an accomplished or very knowledgeable economy designer it's going to be a huge huge piece it has been for us it's going to be for any project because you're essentially taking on a a DeFi project you know this is a decentralized finance mm. operated project if they don't know it straight away that's fair enough but again it comes back to that being willingness to be open-minded they're gonna to have to be able to handle those concepts and and be able to be adaptable in those areas yeah and, and on that there's kind of analogy that actually my my cousin shared with me which is we we want the right people on the bus we want to get the the wrong people off the bus we want to put the right people in the right seats on the bus and then we want to let them drive the bus let's go and talk about the game because there is a, a game that you guys are building in the center of of the offering that you're doing for your community and the future players that will join what are the biggest learnings from building a game that works with web3 I think the thing to sort of always bear in mind is that mm. it's kind of the utility of it and the fact that what people are going to do with these assets is a huge learning. So, and it has ramifications for game design. It has ramifications for game balancing where in a free-to-play game, you put out some a new weapon or a new sword and it turns out it's massively overpowered and it's kind of, you know, changing the economy too much. You can push an update that completely changes things and if people are upset, you may be throwing some hard currency you can it's a problem you can mitigate you know like it's not that people you know they, they might be annoyed but ultimately they, they understand that the game's changing and balancing all the time if you do that with a, an item that someone spent a lot of time and potentially a bunch of money kind of upgrading spent hours and hours playing and upgrading and they, they built up the value of it and, it and then we decide as game designers that, that we don't like how that's balanced that's really unfair for someone you know that's just, just really something we've had to bear in mind where decisions are have to be much more carefully thought through in terms of balancing. Um, and that's going to be an ongoing um, consideration. There's just different, not, there are just different levers you can pull and some are not available to you as a game designer in this because of that aspect of it, that you can't, you can't wipe out people's investments in the digital assets because that's just fundamentally a really bad thing to do. You don't want to do that. So that's, that's a big learning from it. And then uh, building a game around those concepts and to try to make that as fun as possible. And also, yeah, we're, continuously learning especially around things like security on the tech side so vulnerabilities things like front running attacks how to mitigate a lot of these issues i think yeah as neil mentioned like sustainable kind of economies and and our project we want our games to last years and years that's kind of the backbone of 
what we want, we need to build and, and want to build. And with that comes, I think, you know, looking at how do we forecast what our model looks like in terms of our whole economy holistically, given different personas in our game that can interact with our whole ecosystem. How do all these things affect our, our models? So I think that that's a huge learning curve, I think, certainly on the tech side. And another aspect is always looking to see where you can involve the community. Is your game able to have elements that the community can contribute to? Is there anything that, that they can suggest or actually contribute physically themselves that can be fed into the game? Because that's kind of part of the ethos of this. And we're always looking to see where those, those things can happen, you know, from either either just getting the community involved in, in voting or on on. on suggestions we make to them, showing their interest in different aspects of things we might be considering. That's a very light touch, right down to being able to change elements within the game, whether that be naming from or, or, or just actually contributing elements in terms of models or whatever to the game. These are all things we're considering. We're trying to work out how we might accommodate these things, but that's an element of game design we would not have had to consider before. Uh, but it's actually quite enjoyable to think about how you can bring people in because it's, it's a positive feedback loop once people are invested and they can feel like they can contribute. That's really positive. How about like just the, the community side of things? What, what are the learnings there? Like you mentioned already that bringing on somebody who who can help and build that community what happens in that activity that they're then doing to actually like bolster the community there's a huge amount of communication is that the main point is, is is bringing people into to to attract someone into the project you need to be giving them something in terms of the vision for the game showing the the team and, and uh, that you can justify why someone would want to come in like because you're bringing people in and people can potentially put money into the game before they can even play it in a lot of cases so they need to feel like they they're in they're, they're investing their time and effort into something that should that should pay off so there's a big piece about you know talking about who we are what we what our vision for the game is being as honest and open and transparent as possible about how we intend to deliver that and then on a practical level i mean the, the team is constantly speaking to people answering their questions Um, people have really, really great questions. We've done a few Ask Me Anything sessions over, over Twitter and we're constantly doing um, reach out to people and answering their questions as they come in. And building what we found, and again, again this is not something we've had first-hand experience of up until now, is that there are a lot of people out there who are really, really just keen to be in, get to be involved. They, they're very happy to be um, more engaged than you would, have, you would actually expect in projects it's really really heartwarming we've been getting you know as, as i said the game's not playable yet but we've got people creating really kind of complex in-depth and time-consuming fan art based around what they've seen so far of the game and we've really put a focus on quality over quantity there are you can see projects out there that have huge numbers but if you look closely you've got on you they're, they're just people who've come in because they've been offered things and we don't want to do that necessarily no we don't want to do that you don't want to you see you see projects that will come in you know get a hundred people you know get some people to sign up and you'll get this reward but those people they're just incentivized to do that in the short term but they're not really going to be sticking around and once those kind of offers and those essentially bribes are run out i mean we're offering rewards and incentives but they're much more aligned with the projects um, and they, we're not trying to just bloat the, the the community with people who are just going to come in for freebies and then disappear we're trying to evolve everyone um, in conversations about what we're trying to do we're educating them about the whole web3 space because a lot of times it, it's very new to people and we have to sort of explain how things work 
and they're in, they're keen and they're, they're interested to find out. So it's about building an engaged community who will ultimately help be the fans of this project. And you know they do some of the work for you. Their enthusiasm is contagious and and helps spread the word about the project and bring people more people in uh, as time goes by. Final thing that I want to talk about the game was like the tokenomics, which is plays a very key role in the success. Now, what have you done now for Blast Royale? How did you come up with those models and the economy and, and the learnings that you could share for people who are just getting into tokenomics? This is where we really should have Nick here, but um, you know, we Nick has done a lot of economy game design in, in his career as a as a free to play um, game designer and. The great thing about this space is you can go and read other people's white papers. So you can broad, you can educate yourself for free. Very broadly, you can read as, as all, a, a ton. Every project's white paper is, is visible. That's the entire point of that. So you can educate yourself. You can you can look at the examples. Everyone looks at Axie Infinity because it's the biggest thing that's ever happened in the space. You can take learnings from that. The games that have already come out before you, you can take learnings from that. You can the, the basis of it though is 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 that is your game designers plan for the game how they want it to work and then that's cross-referenced against things that are already out there cross ref as i said either through the the, the the examples are out there in the community games are already out there and in our case as well using machinations to then check their assumptions through a simulator and check that the things our assumptions are correct before they go live as well that's been a big part of that yeah. but ultimately you're trying to build a long-term stable self-sustaining economy that doesn't doesn't require it being a Ponzi scheme effectively to, to operate. It must be bringing in new people uh, for the right reasons to, to, to generate a healthy economy. Yeah, just on that. So Nick Denistoff, who's um, design director, his background is he, he was a programmer at Wargaming and he's He's been in different roles around like systems design. Initially, uh, Nick put together data models in Excel and wrote like some Python code to kind of simulate what we have, which is a two currency kind of token system. Along with that, we started modeling like things like pricing and things like addressing issues like inflation and how do we, you know, solve liquidity for our, our whole economy. And what levers do we need to to adjust if we see the economy maybe you know going south and stuff in different aspects around tackling things like high inflation in, in the economy? So we we also at first like we have a, a number of of advisors on the tokenomics side. So we we've partnered with Mint Knight and we have Joan who's a, an analyst on the on that side and we we also have an advisor michael cam who's helped us more on the business side just opening doors and connecting us with people around um, our tokenomics things like vesting schedules around the, the tokens as well and, and and what that looks like for everybody involved and we're in, we're in it for the long run so in terms of like having a cliff and the vesting schedule it was it was definitely more long term that there is still a huge amount of experimentation almost i don't know if it's infinite but the, this is very very early days you know we've done one thing people are coming up with new concepts all the time this is a hugely powerful tool it's a hugely powerful movement it's a hugely powerful set of um, instruments and, and technologies that we are only just you know, we're at the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we will see in terms of how people tackle tokenomics and how that will be interesting for people getting into these projects that, you know, this, you know, we, we, what we're doing is, is, is not, 
it's innovative, but it's not revolutionary. We've done it for the reasons that we set out in terms of what we were trying to achieve. People can tackle this in so many different ways. They can they can have much more exotic ideas around this. This is a great mm. thing about it. There's this sort of sky's the limit in terms of how you approach it. As long as you understand the fundamentals, you understand the gravity of your the decisions that you might make, and you protect yourself and the community from that, then there's a huge huge scope to have a lot of fun. I think. Yeah, and also in terms of maybe things like DeFi integration, what that looks like, you know, in terms of uh, yield farming and staking and so on so there's definitely different aspects to the ecosystems outside of like blast trial that tie into to our token there's so much there i think we could talk another hour about the tokenomics yeah people yeah people should go and check out uh the blast royale white paper i think that's a good place to to get some more info before we go to the final questions can we can you give some interesting dates for this year that the audience could follow like if they want to play the game, if they want to get involved with the community, what is happening next for you guys? Anyone can join the community right now. You can join our Discord um, and, and get involved. And on there, you'll, you'll get information in terms of what the game is, frequently asked questions, and just understand what it is we're trying to achieve, learn, yeah. more, learn more about what we're planning in terms of the roadmap. Right. Hey, final questions for you guys. Do you have a, a favorite book and why? This is, I love this question. I, I always fantasize about being asked to go on Radio 4's Desert Island Discs. So when I, re- I read that, you, you know, you, you, pre- you preempted, you let me know that this question was coming. So it was, it's, just, it's, just, it's incredible to be forced to sort of think about this. So I went and looked at my bookshelf and the one I picked is, I always get the name backwards, so I took a photo of it, is Last and First Men by Olaf Stapledon. So I'm a big sci-fi fan, but I can even read the, there's a quote from Arthur C. Clarke on the front, which reads, no book before or since has ever had such an impact on my imagination. And that's by Arthur C. Clarke. So that's a good recommendation. But as a Olaf Stapleton writes, he didn't think he was writing science fiction, but he writes science-based, almost like metaphysical musings on humanity in a, in a slightly sci-fi wrapper. And it's about the, the evolution of man over billions of years, which I've never really thought about before. But once you open yourself up to that possibility, because it's, 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 it's hugely entertaining and almost spiritual. And so that's, that's why I picked that one. Uh, yeah, on my side, a book that really stood out for me was um, That They May Face the Rising Sun by John McGarren. And um, yeah, it's a novel about ordinary life, really. And the, it's a celebration of, uh, of living life and, and nature and simplicity. And yeah, just amazing storytelling for me, which I think in Ireland we've got down to a T, not being patriotic. Yeah, that one really stood out. We should read each, we should read each other's book now. I'll read both of those. Do you have a story that has shaped you and how you approach your work today? Yeah. Um, on my side, I remember as a kid, my, my dad, he, he was a researcher at a shellfish laboratory and in Connemara in the west of Ireland and yeah I just remember him working on this project he was growing like algae in a a big fish tank and just his focus on what he was doing I literally couldn't get five seconds of his time and yeah I remember him just taking notes about the project and so due diligent I think it always stuck with me in terms of like my trying to keep focus you know and, and especially when a lot of things are, are are flying around like information and and things that could distract you but um that was definitely something that has stuck with me always more around the 
when when you do things, it's important to remember not to lose focus. Basically, I can't I can't top that. Really, I guess for me, my I've transitioned from being as someone who works hands on as you know as an artist, and and I've transitioned to someone who's completely hands off. But I took my experience from how I was treated by people who were maybe briefing me or looking after me in the past, the good and the bad, and try to continually improve the way I work now as a CEO, looking after the company and people and, and putting all my energy into that. And I think sometimes you have to let go of, of things you were doing in the past and embrace new things in your career. And that was being a big learning for me, a personal learning is to, is to be able to do that because it can, it can be painful to let go of things. But once you do and you understand what, what you really can contribute to a project and to a team, I think I've, you find... Um, much more calmness to and that's what I've sort of found and I feel much more rewarded for that and understanding where you're best to put your efforts rather than sort of fighting it and trying to push in the wrong direction has been a big learning for me. What is the best way for people out there maybe there's game studio entrepreneurs who want to dabble in web3 like how, how can they reach out to you guys what i mean on your specific wording that question i don't think you can dabble in it it's kind of all in it's either all in or <laughs> yeah like all in or dabble all in yeah <laughs> yeah you, i mean i've spoken to different people about this and yeah you there is a there's an educational piece it really is in terms of contacting us i mean i mean we're publicly visible on linkedin i mean whether or not you would uh, get an answer or not is another matter but the community is, is is public you know the project is public we can always ask you there yeah on discord all the dev team are, are have roles within the our discord for blast royale so that's certainly a good place and you guys are hosting this uh, gathering in london as well can you talk about that a bit maybe there's like space there for more people yeah of course we'll we'll i mean hopefully you can share links but yeah we do a monthly um call it the crypto cabal like a meetup uh, and it touches on what we said earlier which is you know we've spoken to hundreds of people had a great experience with that and we're trying to promote that and extend that to to the to the growing community we've done it four times now and then it's got bigger every month and we'll hopefully continue with that it's an informal way of meeting people and discussing what people might be uh, working on it tends to be people there's a there's a huge variety of projects people are working on and i'm talking about just bump just being in a room full of people saying hey what's your angle it could be you know it could be someone i met someone who's built a, a technology technological solution for a multi-platform metaverse which is what happened to me last week or it could be someone who's got an interest in an nft project so you know or someone who's been working in finances now trading in nfts and is looking to get involved themselves you know these are just three examples out of a dozen i could give you But the main thing is that we're trying to trying to build a community of people who can help support each other. And maybe now going forward, we'll also do some maybe slightly educational pieces, maybe some little talks we'll be bringing into it as well. We're on on Meetup. Yeah, and hopefully we can share a URL somehow off the back of this to, to get people to sign up and come on down and, and meet people face-to-face and, and, and just find it as a resource to get involved in this space and learn more about it. Yeah, good stuff. Hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is going to be super helpful for so many people. So thanks a lot for this. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, pleasure. Hey, talk to you guys soon and uh, have a good day. Thanks, Jürgen. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Before you move on, please remember to follow or subscribe to our show so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is live. See you next week. Bye-bye.